Mark, do you have our uh, flight plan off, or do we need to uh, have dispatch refile for it? Hello, and welcome to Telerotor RC, a podcast about RC helicopters hosted by Michael, Mike, and Robert. This is Episode 3, titled Urcha Board Interview. This is Robert Monty, and with me I have Michael Shaggy Parker. What's up? Hey, guys. And Mike Grumpy DePaulo. I'm here. <laughs> In this episode, we have an interview lined up for for you uh, with the Urcha board members. Uh, this episode's a long one, so we're going to skip what we did since the last episode and go straight to the news and then the interview. Aww. <laughs> so, heli news. Who wants to take the first item? Shaggy, I thought you had some things, didn't you? I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just going to wing it here. Uh, Your winging is tired. Yeah. So, uh, I am tired. <laughs> <laughs> so the first item up on there is uh, there's upgrade parts released for the Compass XO500. Uh, they're available at Experience RC. And uh, I was looking over the list of parts. Uh, I see some new rollers for the tail belt, uh, some battery trays and such. And basically, it, uh, it lists that most of this was done for uh, increased durability. Um, so it's all over at Experience RC. Uh, the other thing is uh, they mentioned that all the uh, XO500 kits dated uh, 2000, December 2017 or later. Um, they will come with the upgraded parts in them, which is that's pretty cool. Uh, let's go over to uh, the new Blade Fusion 270 that was just announced. Ooh, that's cool. Didn't hear about that. Yeah, they uh, they put out a video, I think, was it right before uh, February 1st? And uh, they showed they showed some, uh, you know, way wide shot uh, video of the heli. and People were guessing all sorts of sizes. But uh, yeah, come, I think it was February 2nd or, or later that day. No, they put it out January 31st. And then the 1st of February, they, they announced us the uh, Fusion what was your first remark, uh, uh, Mike DePaulo? The which one? The Fusion Two Seventy. Yeah. What was your first re- remark when you saw it? Why does it have so much rake? <laughs> I thought that was a fad. <laughs> you know, uh, I've having flown. You know, I used to own a, a, a T Rex Two Fifty, and we've got guys who fly small helis at our field, and they usually take off from a brick placed in the grass. Um, I mean, I, I think can I see understand. the reason. I understand it. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to do F3C with perfect, you know, perfect no drift takeoffs. <laughs> I think the other thing I was seeing is the I don't know if the guys have been over the parts list yet, but uh, I wonder how much uh, how much is new and how much is, re- is reusable because um, reusable stuff isn't uh, sometimes the parts done right. It's a good thing. Shaves you money and you got more parts to share with other helis. You got that list loaded up there yet, Shaggy? Finally. Okay. Why don't you throw us some of that news there about item number three? Three, 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 three. Something about Mikado. Oh, yeah, three. Patiently waiting for Philly to have football riots. I heard they were going <laughs> to grease the. I heard they were going to grease the light poles again. They had to do it last time. <laughs> they made it to the Super Bowl. Grease the light poles. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so for Mikado, uh. For people that want to get a uh, a V bar or Neo, uh, you buy one, you get the Pro Software uh, uh, license voucher free. This is um, uh, valid to the uh, February twenty eighth of this year, twenty eighteen. 
So yeah, that's pretty cool how they're just they're they're literally offering you the purchase the you know VBAR Neo and you get that pro software included. Uh, what what is what is usually the cost for the, the software? Okay, so the cost of Mikado USA list, the pro firmware costs thirty euros. The Pro Plus Rescue Combo firmware costs 84 euros. The Rescue firmware as an update, if you already have Pro, can be purchased for 75 euros. Okay. <laughs> uh, in other news, uh, the Bavarian Demon, uh, the representatives of Bavarian Demon have uh, oh yeah, I saw that posted on Facebook. They're looking for team members. So uh, if you love Bavarian Demon, you feel like you're representing their team, go check it out on Facebook. Yeah, I saw that. It was pretty cool. That's pretty cool that they're uh, they're they're looking for people, and I'm pretty sure they're going to get a lot of uh, new people to to do it. So only fine. Helly's ran a drawing, and a winner was announced. It was uh, Cecil. He's getting. Uh, he won himself a free iCharger 206B from uh, uh, the folks at Only Fine Helly's, Shannon and his family, uh, which is pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. Pretty uh, nice. Yeah, I've been wanting to get one of those to try it out, just as like a small little field charger. It was yeah. like a nice little charger. Yeah, yeah, six uh, six cell batteries, twenty amps. That's a uh, that's solid. The Shannon wrote down, uh, "Thank you for everyone who was part of the drawing, and uh, look out for their next drawing." So, I'll probably give a shout, or uh, you know, go check out Only Fine Helly's on Facebook. Uh, he's one of our local hobby shops in Virginia. He's always at our events, and uh, we get to see his son out there flying and showing off. Uh, Caleb, you know, Caleb's always fun to watch fly. He has he has a lot of fun with all his helis. He flies a really nice mix of uh, Synergy and Protos, um, so it's always fun to see him. Any uh, any other further news anyone got? Uh, that Fusion is freaking awesome. Stuff, but I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> Uh-oh. But you can talk about it now. Nah. Nope. That'd be cut out. You'll see soon enough. Nope. Uh, nope. Nope, 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 And a uh, nope. secret, se- secret project is underway. So excited. No, there's more than one. There's a bunch of stuff. Oh, I got a secret project, but you know, you know, the one that we'll be working on soon. So excited. Starting to do some drawings and stuff yeah, like that, that and one too. parts. Yeah, there's going to be so some fun excited. stuff. For this interview, uh, we interviewed the Urcha Board, the International Radio Control Helicopter Association. Uh, and the board is Charles Anderson, the president, Dan Lucente, the vice president of operations, Tim DePerry, the vice president of development, and Wes Minear, the secretary, who uh, he's just uh, newly took on and volunteered for that role. Congratulations, Wes. <laughs> As you'll uh, you'll hear during the podcast that uh, just some of the stuff that they do and work on and what he's looking forward to working on. So with that, uh, here goes the uh, interview and I hope you all enjoy. Let's go ahead and uh, if everyone wants to rattle off their name and... Um, uh, so basically, introduce yourself uh, and what you do with Urcha. Uh, do you want to go first? No, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm Charles Anderson, and I'm currently the president of Urcha. Uh, I'm Dan Lucenti, and I am the vice president of Urcha. My name is Wes Manier, and I am the secretary. Tim DePerry is also a vice president. Yeah, I think. Uh, and I then th- we also it's... have Craig Bradley. Uh, who's our uh, AMA liaison slash contest director. However, he's kind of passed the torch on the contest stuff. I count that as five. You know, and Craig, just for a piece of history there, Craig Bradley has been around the Urch organization forever. I mean, I think he's been involved for about 20 years. 
Um, probably one of the longest serving members on the board or as part of the AMA contest group in general. I would say for those who've been to Urch and don't know who Craig Bradley is, he is the gentleman with the mustache that is remarkable. Mustache. Yes. Yep. The, we, he, uh, we affectionately refer to him as Walrus. <laughs> nice. I was just going to say, there better be a Walrus joke in here somewhere. Yeah, he's got that perfect Walrus mustache. Sweet. <laughs> you can go anytime, Charles. Oh, you want me to say something now? Hell yeah. yeah. Okay. What is Snake words. What is what does Urcha do, and and how does it benefit the community? Well, I mean that's it's a pretty wide open question as to what does Urcha do. Um, it's it's an organization that everybody knows or most people know started in you know the eighties, and it actually started around the idea of F three C and scale. That was the beginnings of uh, of the helicopter industry, and it began as an organization mainly to have an event and be a voice for helicopter pilots because we know that we're the smallest minority or segment of the hobby itself. So it's always good to speak together when you're dealing with the industry than to speak individually. Um, Urch itself, right now everybody knows us as the Jamboree, but we also work behind the scenes with AMA um, on anything related to helicopters in the industry. And we stay pretty active behind the scenes talking to companies and um, you know, maintaining lines of communi communication with everyone so that we can kind of put people together here and there to make things happen in the hobby. I mean, our goal is to help grow the hobby and to have an event every year where everybody can get together and just have a great time. As, as far as being a voice of the AMA, what kind of things has AMA brought up? Well, um, over the years, some of the things we've encountered are, um, you know, the night flying rules that we've been a part of over the years. Um, we had to deal with anytime there are some incidents related to helicopters. Sometimes we'll get consulted um, on the safety side of things, and so we'll have to come up with some of our own impressions or thoughts as to what might have happened or might not have happened. And we don't always get consulted, but just sometimes we do. Um, and we we kind of help with some of the shows. When AMA has their events, um, we go to the trade shows and we try to always represent helicopters to everyone. Um, we'll do seminars. We'll go to the AMA show and do seminars. Um, we'll go to the Toledo show and do seminars. We try to be a positive voice um, for the hobby and try to help introduce people to the hobby whenever we get a chance. That's awesome. So growth of the hobby, what kind of activities uh, is really going in growth um, besides the seminars and, and the AMA events? Well, I mean, as everybody knows, growth over the years has kind of been fairly cyclical. I mean, we went through a very – when I first got involved with Urcha back in the, I guess, early to mid-2000s, um, we were kind of on the beginnings of a big growth curve in the hobby. And then all of a sudden, the hobby itself just grew exponentially for about 10 years. And then as everybody, every, as everybody knows, we kind of dropped off a bit over the years. So <laughs> the idea – yeah, a little bit. Just the little. idea that we have is to try to have programs that promote um, the hobby as much as we can. And that means encouraging people to have events, encouraging people to be active in their local uh, clubs. You know, If there's any kind of events that your, your local club does – Make sure as a helicopter pilot you go participate because you may introduce somebody new to the helicopter side of things. Um, we're a very particular group. I mean, as we all know, we all have differences that bring us into the helicopter hobby, and we're usually a little bit more of the tinkerer side of things. So 
finding the people and introducing them to the hobby um, is an important part of being a hobbyist. I mean, you help to bring the new generation in. Sure, yeah. That's, that is something um, that I've found interesting the, is getting new people in. I know last year I went to an event that was near a college here in Virginia, and they had a bunch of uh, college-age uh, people there and showing them the helis. So one person actually had a transmitter and wanted a buddy box because uh, that's what it was there for, and they were really happy to do that. Uh, is there anything specific you that the, the Urcha can do to help uh, clubs who are looking to hold heli events? Well, I mean, we're always available um, if anybody wants any input from us as to how events run. But it's it's interesting in that events, although they can kind of come from the same menu, they have to be tailored to each individual town or area. Um, I mean, what may work on a large scale at the Jamboree may not work on a small scale somewhere else. But there are some basics that are common to every event, and that's planning. You know, starting your plan well in advance, um, because if you do that, you'll have a better turnout, better better functioning of the event. Um, also, it's good to make sure you have a good group of volunteers. Um, the Jamboree, for instance, I mean, we couldn't function without volunteers because Urcha itself is a fully functioning volunteer organization. I mean, uh, all the people that come help in some form or fashion. Um, and, you know, growing and having events, it's sometimes it's a challenge because People just don't have as much time as they used to, and running events at a local level, they take a lot of time. Yes, yeah. And, and most people find that you know you'll have one or two guys that are really interested in pushing and having an event, but they find over time they don't get as much help as they would like, and so <laughs> they burn themselves out. And sure. you see events come and go because you know you have these guys come in who are really gung ho and love the hobby and. They just don't get the help they need. Um, so it's important to have, you know, just people behind you to help support the things you want to do at a local level. Yeah, agree, agree. I know um, DePaulo, Shaggy, myself, I and mean, we help with uh, we help with our own events locally. And um, actually, even just having them there to participate is helpful. Um, it is. I mean, and you know, and you learn like when you have an organization like Urcha, for instance, we've had the same people for a long time. And when you work with the same people over and over and over again, you, you kind of learn each other's strengths and weaknesses and you learn to work with them and around them. And um, that's a very important part of a successful event year to year is having the same people return. Um, so it's important to develop good relationships in the club to make that happen. That's very true. I know uh, for our own club, um, our, our president, our vice president, our treasurer are usually there during the events, uh, very much behind the scenes, you know, cooking food, doing uh, uh, registration, and just generally around talking with people, which is, you know, really nice. And and uh, I know I find myself telling a lot of people they don't get along in their cl plane club, and I'll, I'll tell them, you know what, go buy a plane, go get along. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, I can tell you that's quite true. I mean, there are clubs that I have been to that function extremely well with airplanes, helicopters, quads, everything. And then there are some clubs you go to that you just do have some inherent disagreements between types of models. And it's not necessarily always just helicopters and airplanes. It's sometimes the quads now, or it's maybe the 3D airplane guys, or it's, you know, it, it's some form or fashion, some little disagreement blows into something bigger than it should be, and it causes troubles inside of clubs. And it's a shame that that happens because in the end, we all are just playing with really nice, expensive toys. <laughs> Agree. 
And Charles, what about some of the things that we do with Urcha that people could do in their fun flies, like um, Urcha's Got Talent and some of the other, you know, uh, things that go on at Urcha that you could incorporate into your own event, you know, that's maybe not Urcha or Urcha size, but, or the Jamboree size, but would be, you know, able that you could do. Well, and uh, over the years, you've seen a lot of clubs, they'll have little auto rotation contests at, at small events, or they'll have you know, impromptu you know, 3D events. Um, it Whatever works within each club's format, you know, is it just going to be a generally relaxed, laid-back fun fly? And if it is, eh, they don't really have to do anything. But if they have enough guys who are interested in having some kind of auto-rotation contest or they could even have a, uh, you know, a basic Class 1 um, FAI-style contest, I mean – those are the types of events that you can run really easily. It all depends upon the guys who are, you know, hosting the event. You know, what works for them. Sure does. I know. Um, in planning for a spring event, uh, the uh, the speed the speed flying association they're going to be out and doing drag racing and speed runs, and um, you know we do have auto contest plan. But you know, Wes, I think you you experienced it quite heavily this last year at Urcha, and I, I seen it was trying to put a contest along, even an auto contest at some of the bigger events is like herding cats. Um, oh, yeah, it is. Can't seem to make enough noise. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, honestly, it, this was Wes is really his first year kind of being involved with us um, running things at the event. And he did a fantastic job, I will say, coercing people to participate in our auto limbo. Uh, I mean, that was a random idea we had just to try and do competition. And, you know, essentially we knew with that contest we were convincing people to wreck their helicopters. And so pretty much that responsibility ended up falling to Wes. Everyone loves including crashing. Robbie, Robert there. He uh, he did us a, a solid. No crash. <laughs> One of the few. <laughs> yeah, you had to be that guy. He was that guy. You know, and it's so. funny because we decided this year that we would try just a bunch of new things. You know, worked on a different layout for center stage. We tried the auto limbo. The earth just got talent. And, you know, sometimes having new things helps to make things a little fresh again and, and gives something new for people to try. And, the auto limbo ended up being a, a great success. I mean, Dwight Schilling did a great job coming up with the uh, rules and regulations and running that. And um, Wes did a great job getting the guys to participate. I mean, he had way more people compete in that than we expected we were going to have. <laughs> and then the Urches got talent. I mean, that went extremely well for us. And we had no idea how that would turn out. That was a, a, an idea that was truly, Tim, what would you say, like two weeks, three weeks before we were getting there? Yes, yes, it was very short term. I mean, it was short notice, but but it turned out extremely uh, positive for the event. Yeah, and it, it worked out well because the idea was was to give some of these just regular pilots who happen to have good skills a chance to be seen in front of a big crowd. And, you know, maybe we could help them to find their way onto teams, you know, where they were looking for new pilots. And it ended up working out well because there were – some of the pilots that, that did get offers from teams. Um, I mean, Reese Wyatt is now a, a, a factory team pilot for a line. Sure is. Yeah, he was so, awesome. Yeah, and, and when I, I remember seeing the video of the kid on Facebook, and I'm I'm not a big you know Facebook person, but I watched the videos to see what was coming through, and I was just amazed. I mean, seeing that kid fly, I was like, this is incredible. Um, <laughs> and that's that's what we need in the hobby is we need some new fresh things coming through to, to kind of excite people again. And so uh, we, and we're always open to ideas. I mean, 
if if somebody has an idea and they want to throw it out at us, we're happy to try new things. I mean, we're we don't always have the best ideas, but sometimes <laughs> we have the only ideas, and so we go with what we have. Yeah, I will. Um, I will add on to that. Urch's got talent thing. Um, I actually Rob, Rob told me about it uh, a couple weeks before. Uh, you know, before Urcha and everything. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's cool. And I was thinking about doing it, but then, you know, time went by and forgot about it. And I think it was, what was it, Rob? Was it Wednesday or something like that? Um, no, 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 no. It was, or was it the day of? You you just, um, you said, remember that Urcha got talent thing I told you about? Like, yeah. I was like, well, you're in it. Like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, he signed me up for it. Like, are you serious? <laughs> I didn't rehearse or anything and literally picked my song as I'm walking to the flight line to start. Yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> But uh, it was actually one of the most fun I've ever had, uh, and you know, in flying period, I've never flown in front of a crowd that large. Um, I could always see myself possibly flying in center stage, but didn't think it would be that soon. So uh, it was it was definitely a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it, even though I crashed my E7. I loved it. And that was the idea behind it. Is you know, we thought you know, for so many years, the way we set the event up with the sponsors and their center stage hours and things like that. It, it kind of locked down center stage, and so you didn't see a lot of regular guys. Average Joes. Yeah, trying to show what they had. And we thought, you know, what can we do that will give us a chance to see some of those guys at center stage again? And so, I mean, we, we it was great. We've had great response from it. So we, we definitely, that will be part of the next year's event. Yeah. The crowd really loved the, the fact that, that people that were not the named pilots actually had a chance to come up. And the crowd really... Uh, really embraced that whole thing. I, I think the synergy of the whole thing, no, no pun intended, was synergy, but <laughs> it, it all worked out really positive for everybody, the pilots and the crowd. They really got behind everybody. Sure did. So, so, somewhere Matt Bodos felt in the, in the force somebody say the word synergy, and he smiled just a little. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, the other the other cool thing about the, the Urchers Got Talent is, is that, in my mind, one of the great talents – uh, that people have in our hobby, or, or some do, is the ability to choreograph flights to music. And I think over the last few years, that ability has kind of been lost a little bit. Not, not as many guys take the time to choreograph to music like they used to. And so if we're going to have a new generation of competitive pilots, we need pilots who can choreograph their flights to music. So we were hoping that the Urchus Got Talent would encourage new pilots to take the time to learn how to choreograph songs to music. I mean, because if you think about it, the last generation of pilots that really did that was the the Kyle Stacey's, the Bobby Watts, the Nick Maxwell's, and we don't have a whole new young generation that have learned how to choreograph to music now. And so we we want to encourage that because you know that's that's a great part of our hobby is seeing these guys put on these great flights, but to music. Sure. Yeah, I know. Um... I mean, I'm old generation at this point, but trying to choreograph to music is a, it's a challenge. It is a oh, I, very big challenge. At three in the morning. I cannot even imagine how <laughs> difficult that would be. I mean. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, rooming with Grumpy when he's trying to find music and do maneuvers is, uh, well, he's not called, he's called Grumpy for a reason. Yeah, that was enjoyable. Who's Grumpy? I just so I know who it is. DePaulo. You know who it is, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I remember I mean, getting him in the judging seat to go judge class one. He was so excited. <laughs> I did it, though. I did it. <laughs> well, and you know, that, that leads us over to the F3N, you know, too. I mean, since the U.S. competes now on the on the world stage at F3N, that's a big part of that 
competitive level is being able to choreograph the music because that's a big part of your score. So if yep. the U.S. is going to field teams for that, then we also need pilots who are good at choreographing just for the sake of F3N. You know, that's a great point. And uh, one thing that comes to mind is this is a team selection year. So, um, yeah, this is the year to get out uh, just a few days before Urch uh, Jamboree and, and get yourself at Nats. And, you know, if you're interested in uh, traveling with the team and, and going, you know, around uh, out, out somewhere in the world, do Worlds, this is the year to do it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't catch this now because it's not as popular as it used to be, but. Some of the best pilots throughout, I think, the history of, of helicopters or RC helicopters have competed in either F3C or now F3N also, in addition to just being a straight 3D pilot. Because the precision maneuvers that you have to practice and rehearse in F3C or F3N usually make people a much better 3D pilot. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Charles, because if you think about the grandfather of 3D in the United States, Curtis Youngblood, He's a three-time world champion uh, in F3C, so the, the precision aerobatics uh, helped him become the the 3D pilot of his time. And really, arguably, at that time, there was no one even close to him. Definitely. Yeah, and if, and if you look in Japan, I mean, Hiroki Ito has uh, yep. he won for multiple years, and he's considered the top 3D pilot in I think in most of Asia. He is. Most of these pilots that are champions, either F3C and F3N. Have, have a wide variety of ability uh, as far as precision aerobatics uh, and, and not just throwing a helicopter, what they, what's referred to as smackdown. Uh, it's really put a show on as far as precision ability to reproduce a maneuver over and over again. That's, that comes with a, a whole different level of, of practice and dedication. Agree. I know one of the interesting things I've seen, Tim, is a lot of our, a lot of our best pilots here in the U.S., um, their fathers have done competition when they were flying helis. And well, yeah, that actually that goes back to Curtis Youngblood, his father. Um, the first competition I went to was 1980, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, 1983 in, in the Nationals. And I, I sat next to Curtis and his dad. Curtis was a young guy, and his dad was a competition pilot. Uh, he and Scott Gray and, and, and Daniel Hyatt, they all uh, have a father-son, including the current world champion, um, uh, Ineo Graber, his father was uh, was a world champion, not a world champion, but a European champion in F3C. So there is this uh, tendency for fathers sons to do the sons typically do better than the fathers did. <laughs> maybe maybe not to the pleasure sometimes. <laughs> like, maybe not. a little bit of the glory. Maybe. <laughs> well, you know that reminds me. I mean, over many years when the iHobby trade show was still really big, um, Dave Milner and I were. We were judges for the indoor flying competition, so we judged both the indoor airplane and the indoor helicopter. And pretty much king of the indoor competition realm for helicopters was Kyle Stacy. Uh, as a kid, he won just year after year at iHobby. I think he won five straight years. Uh, it was, yeah. and, and then we judged um, Jack Burnside had an event at Cardinal Stadium out in uh, Arizona. I think three years, and we we were judges for the indoor event there. And um, Kyle was also king of the hill back then for those events too. I mean, it, it was amazing the things he could do with a 450 size machine in a in a small environment. I remember seeing video of Kyle. Uh, I think what he he landed inverted, flipped throttle hold, and it flipped itself back onto its skids at iHobby. 
Yeah, he did. Oh, I was, I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, can you do it again? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you one of the craziest, one of the craziest flights that I've seen, uh, and I think it's been scrubbed from existence of video. But um, um, Art Hughes was flying at Cardinal Stadium in the competition, and you know there are a lot of really bright lights up at the top of the stadium, and. Art had lost the heli for a second as he was coming down, and Bobby Watts was um, was standing behind him as a spotter. Well, Art lost it and just recovered it in his vision as it was coming behind him and in between him and Bobby. Oh, wow. He, he rolled it knife edge and flew in between him and Bobby <laughs> and came back around without crashing. And you know how in Vegas the dealers, like, when they're out, they wave their hands and go, I'm done? Yeah. Bobby did that. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> but it was the most incredible save I've ever seen, and I don't think there's any existence of video out there anywhere. I think it was it disappeared. But it, there was some crazy flying on the indoor circuit there used to be, and I don't think there's, I don't think there's any really indoor competitions now like there used to be at iHobby and uh, at the Cardinal event. I mean, those those are pretty cool to see what pilots could do in small environments. That sounds That's, cool. Yeah, I mean that it makes me wonder. We've got a you know a pretty large crop of small helis right now, um, and a lot of them are actually surprisingly good. Oh, yeah. Flywire systems are hot these days. I'm, I wonder why we don't have a indoor contest. Well, I I think you know of course the i hobby slowly died over time, and um, Toledo doesn't really have a big enough area for it. I mean they used to have a, um, a an indoor competition, but it was mainly a fixed wing indoor thing. Uh, and then the the Cardinal Stadium event is did just I think it was too expensive to continue on, you know, and it, it lasted I think three or four years. Um, but trade shows in general, um, indoor trade shows are difficult. Um, the costs are extremely high for companies to go to, and um, that's why the whole theme of something like Urcha, where it's a combination of a trade show and a fun fly, lets pilots both come fly and visit the companies from all over the world that they wouldn't ordinarily get to see. So I think that thing. the AMA expo out on the West coast is, is moving their facility for next year. Aren't they? They are. Yeah. They're, uh, they're moving it to the Pomona venue. fairgrounds because they want to yeah. have, um, they want to have an outdoor component now. So they're going to have outdoor flying next year. And, and that's, you know, that's a big part of the hobby. I mean, if you just see these things sitting on the ground, well, they're not as impressive as they are when they're actually out in the air doing something. So, you know, it's, we're a, we're a touch and feel kind of hobby. I mean, you actually want to have somebody with their hands on a transmitter and seeing what something does. I uh, and I look forward to seeing Pomona next year. Uh, I'm kind of saddened though. I mean, where am I going to get video of Ben Stork landing on a wall? Well, that's right? true. <laughs> but you know, who knows what what Ben and the other guys will be able to do outside of the Pomona Fairgrounds? I mean, I've never been to the place where they're going to move it to, so I. Don't know what it might be like. I've heard it's got a lot of potential because they're planning, I think, on having a car area, boats, um, airplane, helicopters, you know, all kinds of stuff outdoors. I mean, they're going to try to turn it into a, a fully encompassing event for the hobby. Yeah. Because it already came up. Monty was joking about me trying to sneak a 180 in a foam plane into AMA Expo East. <laughs> well, you know, I think they did let uh, Alan this year flew a – was it a 550? Yeah, it was a, a 550. 550. That's pretty Ooh, big. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think have they have no problem with my fireball. I think the staff figured, yeah, we're not coming back here anyway. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think, like, you know, last year when we, when we were at the uh, AMA East show, 
Remember just when uh, when they spooled up the the Diablo seven hundred? Just people Jeez. came around just to watch it hover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the sound of something in a in a room like that. The echo is incredible, and people cool. go, oh, "I got to see that." I went to the New York Auto Show at the Javis Center, and I remember I was down on the uh, down on the lower level, and they had a, a full size Nissan truck packed full of speakers, and there was like. 10 people down in the whole floor and he lit that stereo up and all of a sudden they had a hundred people there. Just, just a noise <laughs> drew him in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well. You know, and going back to talking about what could, what could you do in advance to attract more people? I mean, maybe like what we did at Expo East last year, if you could set up something to buddy box general public as they come in for an event, giving somebody just a, just a, you know, a minute or two on a transmitter just to let them get a feel for it, I think is a great idea. Cause we had, Anytime we've done that at a trade show, we've always had really good response from people who are interested in trying their hand at it. So, you know, sure, sure that's does. been I, successful. Yeah, I uh, when I went to that uh, when I went to that show near the college, um, I have an extra transmitter now, and I, I went and found the CD and a few of the friends and said, "Tell the guy, tell anyone here, I'm, I'm happy to buddy box. Come on out, come on over." Um, I, I think of about twenty people. Two of them took the opportunity, and they both had a blast. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people are afraid of doing it. They're they're afraid they're going to crash it. But once you reassure them, no, nah, I you know I'm, I can probably take care of it. We're no worries here. Um, you know, they're willing to try it. Yeah, I tell many of them many times. Uh, it's my helicopter, my gear. It's my problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that and that's the gentleman's rule in the hobby. If you offer, then it's on you. But if somebody asks, it's on exactly. them. Yeah. Exactly. The, the one, the one, uh, the one guy took the opportunity. He actually had a uh, Fataba 8FG. He flies mode one. He was actually from. He was there at school from, uh, I think China, and uh, oh, good mode one. Well, mode the fun one. thing is, is uh, the fun thing is, a lot of people would ask, "Is like that's possible? Like, it channels a channel. Doesn't matter if it's mode one or mode two or mode four. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we I, I took the blades off the helicopter tail blades. We went through, did the whole thing, worked fine. Took them out, and let them fly. Hmm. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's a big deal. And and machines are so much easier to deal with now than they were even when I started back. I mean, I started right before Flybarless was ever even thought about. I mean, I, a Raptor 50 was my first machine I ever owned. Um, and uh, Or actually, Raptor 30. I had a Raptor 30. And so, you know, it was a, back then it was 401 gyros and Fudaba 9C radios. That was pretty much what everybody had. And, wow. Uh, you know, now teaching somebody to fly is so much easier with a fly barless machine. I mean, you can make the machine as stable as you need to for somebody who's beginning. Agree. And yeah. The Raptor days were even pretty stable. I started with a Nexus 30 and a mechanical gyro, and oh. that was a, a lot less it's friendly. Spin up yeah, <laughs> you have to let it sit on the bench because it wasn't hitting hold or anything. So you'd let it sit there and spool up, and you'd listen to it. And once it got spooled up, now you could like go try and fly it but wow. you know after i've flown for a while and i i, I kind of became the guy who helped everybody at our club who wanted to try helicopters somebody brought a um i think it was a nexus uh it had that funky start thing on top of it was that a yeah, nexus? cone yes okay, yeah, yeah. The cone. yeah it, you know how in your head like you see things play out in your head as to what you really like to do <laughs> yeah i saw myself with a bat beating that helicopter <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you should see some of the crazy crap that's in Bob Harris's garage. Then you'd have an aneurysm. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> when you had to, oh, it used to be so he, much worse than that. He's got one in there. He's got one in there that not only do you have to start it with a fan belt, like an old yes. school airplane, right? Th that's what that V block on your Dynatron's for. Yeah, it's for the yeah. it's for the ghetto, the ghetto fan belt to start your heli, and then the tail rotor 
There's three pulleys along the boom that go back to the tail rotor with different belts. Whoa. And that was state-of-the-art at the time. Wow. It used to be when you hit, hit throttle hold, you could watch the tail blades stop. And if you wanted to turn the helicopter, like, yaw it to the left, you would put in left aileron. And that's yeah. why we had the tail fins that weren't CNC'd out was because you were using that tail fin to keep your auto going straight. You know, I was always wondering prior about that. To. That makes sense now. Yeah. Well, you know, I had um, I got my first electric heli. The first one I ever had was the original first Joker that was ever released. But then I had a Logo 10, and it was an undriven tail. Wow. As I say, it's just amazing how far the hobby has come along. And it's, it's funny because it kind of poked along technologically, and then all of a sudden, once the first step happened, then it just accelerated. I mean, we went from the original – I remember seeing the original V-bar um, fly – yeah, the one with pedo tubes. Do you guys remember any of those? You know, what? I don't no. remember any pedo tubes. Yeah, the the very first one ever. It was like a thousand dollars, and it had pedo tubes. Uh, and programming it, it was a nightmare. I mean, you needed an advanced degree in theoretical calculus to <laughs> program it. And um, you know, I I looked at it back then, and I thought, there's no way this is ever going to catch on. <laughs> and um, you know, but Ralph with Mikado, he just stuck to it, and they kept evolving and kept evolving, and then all of a sudden, with the silver, I think the the what was the the what was the first really commercial V bar that was available for everybody to use? Was the, the blue line? No, the blue line. one before that. It was, yeah, it was a black. It was originally just a black, black line. Yeah, yeah, it was the black. they called it the black line, but it was just the V bar then. Yeah, the white label they, on it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. The white label. I mean, they they finally hit a price point where people could afford, and once they did that, all of a sudden, it just flybarless started to slowly creep up and take over. Same thing with with electrics. I mean, when I first flew electrics, my Joker flew on thirty two nickel metals and NICATs. <laughs> I mean, I literally seven hundred pounds, six pounds of batteries to fly. <laughs> Um, I uh, I lived out in Phoenix when Tim Skinnard sent uh, uh, Krauss the first uh, what was it the, the ion. Fury Ion yeah. yeah and it 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 had these lithium ion batteries and I think they were ion I don't believe they were polymer and he was charging them with a power supply just putting in a constant a amperage it wasn't even like a charger to supply them you just plugged it into the power supply and you could adjust the amperage on the power wow. supply and the volts and it was it was pretty close to fire every time I think we charged the batteries. Those were those, um, those, were those A123 A1 batteries people were taking yeah, out of right. uh, power tools. Yep, yeah, this right. was this was a little before that, I think, but they were um, like 6S2P or something like that no, back that when the, you would that run. That was the A123s. Yeah, Dan's right. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, there was a kid that had a Raptor, and he stuck this brick of A123s in the <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think I flew one of the first... One of the first years I ever went to the Nats, I flew, I think it was one of the first electrics, but I flew an Ion X2 on 10S2P. And okay. back then, all the real competitor pilots you know, thought it was kind of a joke that you wouldn't even make it through a whole flight uh, on electric. <laughs> and of course, now everybody that competes flies nothing but electric. And it, yeah. it happened the same way with batteries. Once the price point hit a certain level, all of a sudden, electric took over. Yeah, that's not to say there's always going to be nitro because there's a, a group of guys that will just absolutely love nitro no matter what. But you know, now I would say the the market is probably 
a little skewed toward more electric now than it is nitro. Probably maybe what would you think, Tim? Sixty percent. Oh, I agree. Electric. The, the general market is probably uh, six. Well, I, I would think it's even better than sixty. More, I, yeah. Worldwide, it's going to be probably seventy thirty um, for electric versus nitro. I think. Well, I I would I would agree with you guys. Uh, I would say that the the big push is just how many small helis now that aren't even nitro size that really push it for electric. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny now to see somebody take an electric kit and convert it to nitro gas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's funny because in the early days, that's what we did to all the nitros. I mean, I had a one of the early T-Rex 700 nitros, the first one with a fly bar, and we were converting those to electric. And there was a, a conversion kit that somebody made aftermarket back then for those. And, it, and it's funny just to see now we're on the other side where people make conversion kits for nitro or gas for electric models. My nitro back, man. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Want a 180 nitro with a yeah. .049 engine in it. Oh, yep. and those things are loud. Yeah, I, I want to make one. That'd be awesome. I've got an engine. Dude, I, remember, I remember seeing a video from some German guy that did that, with like a little T-Rex 300 size thing, and he stuck like a little TD Cox 50 in it. Yeah. It was awesome. No. But God help your ears. Oh, yeah. Well, what was the... Um, there was a model that was being sold as a little tiny... Nitro kit not too long ago. Uh, um, what size? Up in Ohio, they made it. I forgot. Yeah, it was up in Ohio that was selling it. Um, it? Yeah. Well, Buddy RC sells a like a 480 Nitro. I guess the same thing as the. Yeah, that's I remember seeing that one. It's like Gart makes it or something. It's the Buddy RC one. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, like Gart or something. It's like a, a Global Eagle. Hmm. I think you that's said, what it's you, Guys have said it's not actually like super terrible, but it is kind of low on power. Did you call it a, a Glow Weevil? Global <laughs> Eagle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what is a glow weevil? It does kind of burrow into your ears when it's running, but... <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. There's the new challenge. Someone named their model the glow weevil. Yes. <laughs> the glow weevil. I'll do it. <laughs> well, yeah, Mike, we'll, we'll, when we finish it, we'll, we'll, we'll call it that. Well, no, it's already got a name, so we'll, we'll think of something else. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you guys think about the the swing back towards some of the more old school style of flying? I mean, it seems like over the last few years we've had kind of a drop off of the crazy smack to uh, to more regular big sky stuff again. I mean, it seems like we're seeing that more and more over the last couple of years. I would tend to agree. I think it has, to me, I think it has a lot to do with um, just where the money's at in the economy and, and who's able to afford and play. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, I don't think there's just so much money out there. So you see a lot of older guys who, you know, big sky is within their, within their capabilities. Well, I think not just, not just monetary capabilities, but I think a lot of people like to fly that way. I mean, we see, like when you go to events, you see the same people over and over and over again at events. But there are so many more you know, club level pilots who don't travel to a lot of events. And I think, you know, those guys prefer that style of flying. They prefer, prefer big open, big sky flying. You know what I mean? So in it's, my, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was saying in my eyes, um, for, I mean, I've always preferred like the big air th uh, 3D. Uh, I mean, of course, sure, getting low to the ground, smacking it around, it's always fun. You're trying to get as low as you can. But, you know, for me, I like, flying the big air because it seems it, i don't know i guess because i'm coming from uh, um, an airplane platform you know i always fly you know high up i never get low to the ground so maybe that's maybe that's part of it there but 
flying really just smooth, big air and very precise. Just it it, it draws me in. I, I enjoy seeing that. Um, especially especially like uh, as simple as a uh, Cuban eight. Oh uh, yeah. You know you, you know you pull on top and then you roll at the top and trying to keep that roll as, as straight as possible. With a plane, it's fairly easy because you just boom pull you know just it's super easy just to roll right out of it. But a helicopter is a little bit trickier. You got to make sure your pitch and everything is just right before you roll over. If you if you don't have your pitch just right, you're gonna freaking you know make an oval. And, yeah, or uh, or, or it pretty. looks like mine in the F- FAI stuff where it looks like it's having a seizure midway through. <laughs> So for I mean maybe because I, I fly planes, but that's just something that's always intrigued me since day one is is uh, flying more big air than close, close to the ground because you know flying close to the ground costs way more money. Oh yeah, it does. It does. Well, you know and that makes me wonder. So I, that was kind of my start. I kind of flew. I liked pattern airplanes. I, I had a chaos and used to fly you know big precision stuff with airplanes i mean is that what a lot of you guys did or were some of you straight to helicopters i've gone backwards i'm weird like that <laughs> i i've started with airplanes backwards yeah mm-hmm. really yeah so, backwards huh i built the jet kill me no, I've, I've got a couple of uh edfs myself i've got oh, a he's got a jet jet Oh, a yeah, dolphin, seventy-one inch dolphin. It's like the cheapest, most awesome sport jet you can throw together, and then you can laugh at all your other jet friends that blew twice the amount of money to put a jet together. <laughs> it's like three grand, and then go do knife edge tumbles with it. It's hilarious. It's a wonderful little toy. Tempted. Yeah, you should see the old guys. They freak out when it's like, all right, it's time for a crankshaft with a jet with no thrust factor, and they lose it. <laughs> so how much? How much does this one get cost you? I mean, when you build it like 3200 all said and done with good stuff in it with everything yeah right crazy yeah. isn't it that is crazy and it's not the motor one. plane yeah it's pilot makes oh, it's it. not like the one it's that world. greg alderman melted <laughs> i had one of those i had the f-16 that's the first that i ever had because i got it real cheap because uh a local hobby shop he, they burned out the electronics sounds like well i can fix that but you know knock it half off and he's like all right cool so i took it home got it together with casey and he went to fly it and it flew fine but the problem is with the 60 size engine in it it is depressingly underpowered. You are going to be terrified the entire flight. Oh, wow. Uh, it's lot, lots of fun. So that, that got sold because it was, well, you couldn't do knife edge and cool stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned my lesson. I went and got a, yeah, the sport plane, the pilot dolphin. Things a ton of fun. Huh, that's- and the best thing you can do with it is you go up, you do a couple 170 mile an hour passes at eye level, all the pattern guys land, and then you go fly your helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's to break the ice, to clear, clear the field. I, I think a couple of them figured out what I'm doing when I go up and I only fly for a minute and a half, and then I have a heli out. Oh, so they found you out now, huh? I think they've realized my game, and I got yelled at. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's funny, you know, learning how to get along in a club like that. But, I mean, you, you've got some guys that just, they they do love watching helicopters, even if they don't like to fly. Like, I, I like to watch turbines. I think they're cool as all get out to see in the air, but I'm probably not going to build a turbine. And to me, it's just way too much money in the air. Um you know, I said that too, and then I built one. Then you, then you mm-hmm. built one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, we we had a bit of a push at our field this last year, and I, I went and got my uh, turbine rotary uh, rating from AMA, and Mike got his fixed wing, and I think another, I think two other people got their fixed wing uh, ro- uh, turbine. I want so, to. Do it. It's it's kind of interesting around the club. A lot of guys are like, "Great, this has become a Hellion turbine club." <laughs> yep, you know, I'm happy with this. And that's kind of a strange, uh, kind of a segue there too. That's one side of the hobby that actually seems to have grown over this downturn. Is turbine events seem to have been stronger and actually have more people attending. 
I think a lot of it is the engines themselves. They've started making better ones that are smaller, and they're a lot less expensive than they used to be. Really? That's the biggest thing right there is is the turbine. Yeah, the 85 that I I used for the Dolphin, it was $1,600. Wow. Whereas the the 160 or something like that that a buddy has for his big Avanti, it's like $3,200 for that thing. It costs more than my whole jet flying. Wow. Yeah. I had had an F4, and I sold the... uh, the motor out of it. it was an AMT Pegasus. I sold oh it God, for thirty five hundred. Yeah, I'm old wow. school here. I, I I sold it for thirty five hundred dollars used. The motor. Dang. Back in probably oh nine or something like that. Uh, I think the thing I see is uh, the throttle response has gotten a lot better on a lot of these model turbines. Oh, way better. <laughs> I can't. Kind of, yeah. I'm kind of thinking about putting one in a heli now because <laughs> like an an eighty five power engine. In a 60 size case in a heli would be a riot. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Inside an N7 turbine. But I don't know. Do we have any model helicopters that are still designed around a turbine? I mean, other than. I think um, Bergen still makes his, doesn't he? Vario makes theirs too. Yeah, yeah Vario I mean, makes one. But I mean, a, a, an aerobatic version. I mean, a, uh, do they still make uh, a benzene trainer? I don't know about that one. I think Chris will make you one if you want one. Yeah. And then I know. Was it Dan Minnick, Robert, who made a conversion for the N7 and then it's mostly drop-in with like a Ren 54? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, machinist guy. I actually have a, a, a Ren 54 in a turbine observer sitting in a storage unit right now because I'm too lazy to put it back together. It's not broken, but it's just needs love. So, yeah, I think turbines kinda... on helicopters, they make more sense in the uh, scale area. It seems like yeah, yeah. work. I run into that. Like a turbine heli, it does kind of the same. I mean, I flew one. It was fun. It's got yeah. power. But the electric is, or a nitro even, it, it does the exact same stuff. It sounds cool and it smells cool. Yeah. But it's not like a turbine jet plane that, all right, well, instead of going 100 now, it does 200. Right. I I, I think the turbine still wins at the measuring contest. Yeah, there's always that. (laughs) I mean, I even get shit for pulling my little wood missile out. They're like, that's not a real jet. Wow. Yeah, that happens. Like some of the scale stuff you see over at the Nats, I mean, or or even like when you go to Sprayberry's event down in Georgia. I mean, those are uh, insane. Yeah, the level of work that you see in some of those machines. But even a lot of those guys have gone over to electric over the last few years. So you don't see as much turbine, as many turbines in uh, scale now as you used to. It is just easier. Yeah, I mean, and the power, so the power is there, the ease and simplicity. I mean, it's really hard to beat electrics in the hobby. I mean, I remember years ago when you had somebody say, hey, what would you recommend as a good first model? Um, and it was always something with an OS-50. <laughs> that was the most reliable mm-hmm. non-trailer there was, the OS-50. Go go buy a Raptor, yeah. yeah. And, you know, now it's... it's it, Generally speaking, my opinion is is that something around a 500 sized is your best first model to get into. I mean, if you've got the money and you can spend it and get a you know a 600 size machine, great. But a 500 is a pretty good sweet spot on price and stability and everything like that. And it's yeah, it's weird. The advantage how- of six uh, S batteries on the 500 size too, which especially for a beginner is is the way to go. Yeah, you're going to start wrecking yeah. battery packs. You don't want to be wrecking a 12 S stick. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, instead of somebody, I say, hey, if money's no object, a 700 is fantastic. Um, but if, um, you know, if you need to think about how much money you're going to spend in crash money and you are going to spend money in crashes, 
then you need to look at something that's a little more manageable. And, uh, <laughs> what do you guys think right now? Like, what's the general? It's always different in each area. What is a good beginner model you guys see up in your area? I've I've kind of swung guys towards a, around like a 500 size, or a, I've told them if they don't want to go big heli, it's like go get something like an X3 where you can put 360s on it. And it flies surprisingly good, but there's a little asterisk on there. Can you see it? Yeah. Because yeah. some guys can't see it. If, like, even, if you can see that heli, it's wonderful. And then if you crash it, that is the only heli. If I smash into the dirt, I laugh at it. Because I know it only cost me like 20 bucks, maybe. I say, I've heard that from a lot of guys that the X3 is oh, like dude, a it's, super it's cheap, bomb-proof. cheap crash. And then if you break something, it's like, oh, that cost me a grand total of like $10. <laughs> you know, it's funny, but... I- I think probably one of the machines that I got the most learning out of was uh, the original T-Rex 500 with a fly bar head on it. I started with a 450 T-Rex with a fly bar, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, same here. 450 T-Rex fly bar was my first heli. And the fun part with the whole fly bar on 450 is you can either pick stable and not nerve-wracking or cracked-out mosquito and pray you actually make a full three-minute flight. Yes. The 450 damn near made me quit this hobby. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah, Robert hates 450s. It, it wasn't until I, uh, I I flew a friend's um, X50, the Thunder Tiger Titan X50. I flew one of those, and then I bought a, a T Rex 550 electric fly bar. That's that was actually the heli I learned a ton on. Uh, 450s were too cracked out. I, oh, I owned yeah. one. I owned a 250. I smashed the ever living hell out of them. Well, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the T Rex 250. That thing you buy, you thought it would be cheaper, and it was a trap. It was the cost. Yeah. Of a, it was a cost of a 450, except you couldn't see it. You know, and I've never, I've never been a big fan of the ultra small helis, just because number one, they are an absolute pain to work on. Sometimes, um, you just you break a, you break anything, and it's impossible to see it and get in there and fix it. Um, but I have a, I got a T Rex 150, and. I hit the garage, the mailbox, <laughs> pavement. <laughs> I sounds like oh, you're... I crashed that thing over seven times before it finally broke something enough that it wouldn't fly anymore. And that was in the but, first flight, right? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Cause, cause I was going to say, I, you can crash them seven times easily. No, yeah. But, I mean, and that, well, I'm not counting the times in the grass. I'm just counting the times I hit something hard. Oh, oh okay. But what finally messed it up was I didn't break anything. I, literally nothing broke. The servos would, you know, they would pop out from their little place and you just pop them right back in. Yeah. I finally hit it so hard on the pavement that it pulled one of the tiny little motor wires out of the tail. That was it. Wow. And I was like, how is this thing withstanding what I'm doing to it? And I literally beat the crap out of it. Low weight and plastic fantastic. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, I... Uh, years ago, I had one of the original MCPXs, and I let my oh god, I let my buddy Ronnie Brock fly it. Like he just came to the house, and I said, "Hey, here, try this." He picks it up, and the first thing he did was fly it straight into my garage. It <laughs> <laughs> hit the door of my garage and just bam, broke it. I'm like that was the first flight. How did you do that? Magic. <sighs> no skill. I, no, I got. You know, I got a first-run MCPX, and I ran into an item that Horizon Horizon actually fixed, and that was uh, the blade grip popped off in flight. It, or it didn't pop off. It flew off. Oh, you had one of I those? I did. I had one. I, I, 
Actually, no, I put B grips on it real quick. I think I only had mine for like a week. Yeah. And then before the recall. Yeah, mine, I got mine before the recall came out, and then it already it already lost its grip by the time the recall came out. But Horizon still supported it. You know, in the hobby industry in general, I think Horizon is probably known as being one of the absolute best for customer service. Uh, and for starting as well. That's where I started from. Yeah, I wish Horizon still had their pro line stuff. I. They had some growing pains at the beginning, but I think it was good stuff. It probably would have made it if they would have kept it a little longer. I agree. Just the ba- the demand wasn't there at the time. Yeah, and they were fighting. They were fighting the whole blade helly suck. Yeah, mantra. Well, yeah, there was a lot of that stigma yeah, because of their that's, past. That's about it. Yeah, I think that's what happened to them. I mean, you know, if you build a product that's a an entry level price point, it, no, it's not going to be a top shelf item. It's meant to be affordable to crash over and over again. And I think, you know, they had customers that transitioned from the, you know, the smallest coaxes to the next level to the next level. And I think they were counting on those pilots continue, continuing to transition even yep. to their big pro line. That's what a lot of it was. Yeah. The problem was those people had transitioned to something else, not to the pro line. Yep. And, and I, I'm with you, though. I think the pro line was a great line of helicopters. They just It was just fighting that original concept of a small blade heli. There was a lot of stigma, and I think, if I remember right, there were like two recalls that kind of hurt the image, and mm-hmm. people kind of moved on at that point. Yeah. And I'll say, they are durable. We got a buddy, one of those crazy guys at RCHO, where... Um, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I may have instigated something where I <laughs> I was like, I want to see round two of 450 Combat. I got a free set <laughs> oh. of blades here. I went to a trailer, I come back, and they tell me, well, the 450s don't work, we're going to do it with 550s. I'm like, uh, okay... Sure, I, I'm just not going to be involved with this. But it was a Blade 550 and a Goblin 550, and the Blade cut the Goblin in half <laughs> and only bent a tail boom in Blades, and I was shocked, considering the Blade was the one that actually attacked the other helicopter and how durable it was. The it was like, blade wow, survived. These, the Blade beat Yeah, I was like, these helis were built wow. pretty tough. And, and the guy in question who owns the heli, he smashes it regularly, and it never yeah. really gets beat up that badly. Five, so it's kind of a bummer that the whole line died. The they released quite a few products actually, pretty close together, didn't they also? Yeah. Well, but yeah, if, you, if you think about our hobby in general, how many companies don't release a lot of things in a speedy <laughs> man? Um, I mean, we ever occasionally we'll get, you know, somebody will ask us from a company, Hey, what do you think about what we're releasing next? And my opinion is, you know, it's fantastic, but, how many are you going to release that quick? Because eventually you're going to run out of something to release. Yeah, and you start cannibalizing your prior sales. Yeah. yeah. That happens. But I think the idea is is they want to continually ride the wave of popularity. And, it just, uh, and, it, and that's why you see in the hobby, you see typically a company lasts for a X period of time as the top dog. Um, when I came into the hobby, the top dog was miniature aircraft. Mm. Yeah. And then Thunder Tiger came along. Yep, and, and then a line happened. And then a line happened. Uh, and then Goblin, I think, was the next yeah. big one. Yep, and it's it's just been a hop and a skip. Every so many years, you see a, a wave come through, and and it's it's interesting to watch the waves as they come and go, and and the types of models that are popular. I mean, probably Goblin was one of the more interesting designs in the last few years, and I think that's what grabbed the market at the time for them. Real different looking, real flashy yeah. looking, yeah. Yep. yep, and it seems like now you see, uh, you know, Goblin has been super popular for a long time, but in the last year or so, you've actually started to see more regular pod and boom machine sales happen again. 
top. Yeah, like like really down south, it's all goblins. And I think mid east really, coast. I think he's really. I think Matt's got a good following in the south for synergy, and I think he's also got a really good following. Isn't it up north somewhere? Oh, in Minnesota, they're all over the place. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like the. Um, <laughs> oh god! Oh god! Yeah. The Southern Minnesota, the Merchant Group, uh, Rotary Ringout, Pitch Fest, those events, they're just filled with synergies. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of the teams you know, actually over there. And, and I'm not, yeah. I, I didn't mean to make that sound like a bad thing. I think synergy is a good product. Oh, no. So. Those Minnesota guys are nuts. So, <laughs> they are. one of the interesting things is is what we don't see much, but now with the new podcast started, is, is looking at the metrics of where people are at who are listening. And um, I've been very surprised to see where the people are at. So they actually show within the world and within um, within the world and, and break it down state by state here in the U.S. Because you guys would be – I was surprised by what I saw and not surprised by a little bit of it. So um, – no, I don't think we can leave a line out either. You know, they're well, they no. hot on the West Coast. And, and I, I think I, probably if you were looking at worldwide – levels i would say a line may still be the number one worldwide um and goblin is probably somewhere in that mix with them but you got to figure a line's been around for a very long time so sure. not only not only are they selling new models they're still selling tons of parts for the models that are still in the market i actually bought a manual mill power feed control from them the <laughs> other week no so they're not going um, anywhere it's it's amazing to see. I mean, and, and I I got to see firsthand by going to the Align Funfly this year exactly how big of an organization that really is. And it's it's funny we here in the states we don't really get a good idea of some of these companies. I mean, most companies in the hobby are small. They're not really huge operations. They don't have hundreds of people that work for them. And then occasionally you run across a company that's you know much bigger than you expect, or you find one that's much smaller than you thought it was. It's, it's interesting to see the, the big diversity that we have of, of companies. I mean, probably one of the smallest companies in the hobby, I would think, is Minicopter or Henslide. I mean, those are, I think at Minicopter, there's two people that do the machining. So, um, it's... Yeah, and like Matt's operation, we don't really own any big machines or anything. It's just a little machine shop that we always go to for everything, and I think at this point, last time I looked into it, I think Matt is like 80% of their business or something what like is, that. Well, I'm sorry, I lost you on that one. Oh, just the fact that like a lot of people might look at Synergy and think, oh, big company, real huge. It's like, it's basically just Matt. Yeah, I think Matt. And like two or three other people that help with designs. And then everything just goes to a, a machine shop that we've been using for a long time. And I think Matt is actually like 70 or so percent of that shop's business. Yeah. Like it's not a big yeah, shop. Well, but, but if you, if you, count all the people that are doing the work machining and things for him. I mean, I think literally if you go to Minicopter over in Germany, I think Gerd and like one or two other people are doing most of the cutting and machining. I mean, it's really small. So it's like three guys doing all of it. Yeah, there's like three yeah. or four guys doing all the work. And I think I think the same thing for Henslight, um, for TDR stuff. I think it's another, you know, two, three, four-man operation. It's a very small company. Yeah. And that's why they don't sell in the volume. I mean, they're not volume manufacturers i mean if they probably sell a thousand kits a year that's probably an extreme number for them whereas you know matt and all the the other companies they need to sell you know a few thousand kits a year you know another small one is um uh it's kind of new still but it's the takumi oh yeah that uh didn't that start in canada wasn't that 
He's uh, in Canada. Yeah. Okay. It's got that funky Darth well, Vader looking thing to it. I think one of the one of the guys is in Canada, but I think it's isn't it originally like Taiwan or Japan or something like that, or maybe I'm thinking of something else. Oh yeah, yeah. it's the one with the motor in the back yeah. with the crazy worm drive. Motor or yeah, horizontal. It's, horizontal it's very cool looking. Um, it you know that's the great thing about the hobby is there's there is so much diversity. You can take one machine that is just absolutely ugly to one guy and to another guy it is the prettiest machine he's ever seen. <laughs> kind of like goblins are to some people. Uh, yeah, remember, some people look at those bodies and just go, nope, couldn't do it. Yeah, and remember. Some, they're beautiful. Yep. Remember remember our reaction when we first saw the goblin or our reaction to the Thunder Tiger canopies? That, uh, that oh, odd, yeah. yeah, the odd hump on the underside of a Thunder Tiger canopy. Um, to, to a point I was talking about a moment ago, uh, just, you know, like the top three states that download and listen to this podcast in the U.S., California, New York, and Virginia. Um, I can tell you, there's like Montana and uh, there's Montana and a few other states in the middle that there's just no one really listening. Just when you really? start talking about where people are at. Yeah. Yeah. Top 10 is uh, California, New York, Virginia, Texas, New Jersey, Ohio, Georgia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. That's the top 10 for states in the U.S. listening. Um, uh-huh. You go down pretty far, you know, Arkansas, Maine, Nebraska, New Hampshire, South Carolina, that's single digits. Um, and when you go into the world picture, uh, the thing I was surprised about is um, just to who number number two and number three are. The United States, of course, has the most downloads of this podcast. And the other thing that will affect it is it's an English podcast, so uh, Asia may not take a bu- download a bunch. But um, – Australia and the United Kingdom. Their number, uh, United Kingdom is actually number two. Australia is number three. Australia has actually been number two for the longest, just in total right. downloads. And I was, I was really surprised about uh, about that. Just them being number two. Uh, I mean, Canada's at fourth. <laughs> yeah. Well, yet again, I have I got to call back my buddy uh, in Australia to uh, download the next the last two episodes. He has he's been slacking, so I'll call him out, call him back up soon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the geography one interests me, though, especially, I mean, it's hard to look at, like, sanctioned events in the AMA calendar and, and figure out where people may be at. But you start to look at your sales results or other things, and you're like, oh, so zero, huh? <laughs> no one's buying from there. Huh. Um, that is interesting. But, but again, it goes back to the whole idea. Our hobby is, although it's an international hobby, it's very regional. Um if you've got a couple of guys in a club that really like a synergy, then the other guys who join that club are probably going to buy a synergy. If you've got yeah. a guy who likes a goblin, other guys are going to buy a goblin. If they like a line, they're going to buy a line. I did kind of see yeah. that. Like the Thornburg Club was the only guy with a synergy heli for probably a year and a half. It's the original E5 I've got. I think it's probably like five years old now. And then it was probably two years ago, maybe two or three years ago, a ton of people started buying Synergy helis at the field after Monty yeah, jumped into. Because, of that, because you guys have synergies and told me a lot about them. But if you all ever noticed that even if even if somebody is very dedicated to one brand, there's always typically one machine they keep from some other brand. It might be a blade, it might be in a line, you know. Even if they're synergy dedicated, they've got some blades somewhere. So I mean, even if somebody's dedicated to one brand, they typically they cheat a little bit and they've got some other models around just because we all tend to like a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Matt doesn't make a comically strong bomb-proof 450 yeah. so I've got an so, X3 I mean, that, around. That makes sense. I mean, for the longest time, if you looked at anybody's um, 
anybody's shelf, they might have, you know, two or three thousand dollar machines, but they've got a T-Rex 450 in there <laughs> uh, or they had a T-Rex 500 in there. I mean, I would, you know, it's, it's, I've had a, a smidgen of machines all over the years and it's kind of funny. I have a hard time letting go of machines. I don't know what you guys feel, but mm-hmm. it's like, I, I hate just getting rid of them for no money. And so they'll just sit on the shelf sometimes. I mean, in the same way. What's the what's the oldest machine you've still got around? <laughs> My uh, Bergen Observer. <laughs> you've got an Observer? Oh. I don't know. Probably my Blade 300X. As sad as that sounds. That's. I mean, that's not... I, I've got an original... About five years old. Um, I've got a first-generation Logo 500 3D Ooh. that was originally fly-barred that I converted to fly-barless. You should bring that out, Charles. That was my first machine I ever ever turned into a fly barless helicopter. You should no, bring actually, like, actually, my oldest is a um, T Rex six hundred Nitro, the two thousand nine LE edition, converted to fly barless. Oh wow! That's also my second helicopter, and by far my favorite. Love flying that thing. You know, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, you you find certain things about certain models that you really like, and you just you can't let go of them for one reason or another. Sadly, I'm completely opposite end of the spectrum. If I'm not using it, I get rid of it. The oldest helicopter I have is actually two years. No, it's going to two and a half years now. That's probably, honestly, the better way. The rest of us are heli hoarders. (laughs) I originally started as a plane hoarder. uh, Having planes planes dated, well, my dad got me into it. So there are his that are way older than me. and they still fly, man. We they still fly. We still fly on a on a uh, yeah. pretty regularly. But no, I mean, yeah, based off of flying planes, yeah, we I still have my very first plane. I still have my very first helicopter, and yeah. So. Oh, there's a there's a question for you. What what monstrosity was your first airplane ever? Mine mine was a duraplane. Mine was. It was a what? <laughs> oh, I've, heard of, I've heard of it. I, yeah, had a, I had a Balsa the- USA Stick 40 Plus. Here's a guy from, from Russia the flying The Duraplane was hideous. It's a plastic channel with an aluminum oh, yeah. tail. It's, it was a foam wing with some rods in it to reinforce it. it that thing was bulletproof. You could truly yeah. cartwheel it down a paved runway. And it was <laughs> Sounds like a I still light. have it. I got that plane <laughs> as a Christmas gift in 1988. When I was still in high school, and um, I, I still have that plane. It's in my airplane museum. And the first plane I ever built my myself was a uh, a Midwest Aerosport Forty. Oh, nice! Wow. And I I glued the living hell out of that plane. It weighs about fourteen and a half pounds. <laughs> like I think Robert's seen my first foray into airplanes. I got a chance to experience. The full life cycle of owning an airplane <laughs> oh, in a single really? weekend, namely, yeah, like I, uh, I was like, it, it's all the guys that got me into jets, you know, because like, oh, right, you fly helis really well, so uh, try out a, a 3D plane with us, because it was the same. The weekend before that, I had taken a buddy's, it was like a 50 cc yak or something. I started doing inverted knife edge hurricanes with it, and it terrified him. And it's at that moment we realized, hey, 3D planes can be pretty oh. fun too. People Mike, around you, me are screaming you, you, and running. Your explanation there forgets a whole freaking oh. year, man. A whole freaking oh. year. Are we, are we you talking go about back foam to your forty-eight right? inch monstrosity that wouldn't roll down a runway. It had to have tires. Oh. And you should have been hand oh, launching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of people out there who don't count their first time with a lot of things, but sorry, it exists. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, once upon a time, 3D Hobby Shop made a horrible idea called their Full Fuse Foam Planes, where they tried to wrap EPP foam around a wood core. And, uh, yeah, they were awful. Like, the ailerons would flatten out in high-speed flight, and they generally were just a terrible idea. They disappeared quick. So that's basically why I swore off airplanes for a while, until I went and bought this 71-inch wood thing from a local club member. And all he ever did was, like, sport fly. So I was like, cool, right? I'll get this thing for 200 bucks with a barely used motor. Took it out. It was set up properly for the most part. And uh, me being an airplane noob didn't really know how much I should idle the motor down to actually go to land <laughs> the thing properly. So I went around, like, four times until I was like, you know what? I know what I do when something's wrong in a helicopter. <laughs> I hit throttle hold, and everything works out. And uh, it turns out with an airplane, if you do that and there's some wind... You stop really fast, yeah. and then you do a nosedive and tear all the landing gear uh, out of your airplane. <laughs> so I was up till... Yeah, so Justin, the other airplane guy who got me into jets, he's like, that's fixable, man. You're about to experience the full life cycle of airplane ownership. So we went to Michael's, and then the local hobby time for some stick-on Monaco, and I was up till like 5 in the morning, putting this thing back together in Clubhouse and flew it again you the know, next morning. There's one sense you will... You will never hear no a balls. helicopter person say that I went to Michael's went to get to some Michael's, parts yeah. to fix my <laughs> Yeah, right. The thing that blew my mind, I looked at next, the receipt next to the crate mache and the tack glue. I, that blew my mind. I was like, no wonder, no wonder old guys love airplanes. This, I just tore a large structure of my plane out and oh, I fixed we, it for twelve we bucks. A, we had a, a guy at our club. He literally he could fly anything with packing tape. <laughs> I mean. He, I have seen him rip off an aileron oh, yeah. and just packing tape the aileron back on. Hey, packing tape, duct it. tape, oh, whatever God. kind of tape. If it's adhesive, it'll work. Yeah. Oh, no. It's your backup Monaco, man. It's your backup covering. And I get a, <sighs> I get a nick on a carbon blade, and I want to I want to get rid of them because I'm afraid something's going to happen. just want to take duct tape and start wrapping over. Oh, yeah. Like, Charlie, you know Tavis? Flies big airplanes really close all the time. Oh, yeah. Loves smoke so much, he chokes out on it. Loses his plane in the lights. Oh, that was good. Yeah, but uh, I'm pretty sure his old plane he had for like 14 years and somehow never smashed it. It was more packing tape than it was Monaco. Oh, wow. He, he's even, that thing he's was even glorious. La- you know, flew that thing in the water, pulled it out, and flew it again. The whole thing, if you looked at every single like uh, wooden spur rod and the, and the wings and the fuselage, they were all twisted. It finally just broke oh. in half between, between uh, rotisserie chickening itself with smoke oil on the inside one time and being dunked in the water four or five times. It literally just broke in half. It was amazing. I've got a helicopter story that's similar to that. Uh, a, guy in my, nice. a guy in my old club years ago, he bought a used Robo Freya. And he wanted me to help him get it ready to fly. And um, I was going through it. And you know how you check all the controls and make sure everything moves the way it's supposed to, and, you know, twist all the ball links and kind of check the gyro tape, make sure all that's good. Well, whoever he had previously, or whoever previously owned this helicopter, used CA to hold down the gyro foam tape, <laughs> and nice. he had CA'd the servos. I guess he was afraid they would come out. And uh, I, I told this guy. I don't think we should fly this. I said, this is just kind of like the, you know, the little sprinkle on the icing. Cause we lift this off. There's going to be like a worm in the cupcake. So we should not fly this. And, um, he was determined. He said, well, if, if you don't test fly it for me, I'm going to fly it anyway. Test flyer, no <laughs> balls. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well I'm probably a little more capable of making sure it doesn't hit us than he is. So, uh, I put it like way the hell off. 
you know, from us. And uh, I go to take it off, and it actually lifts off. It's okay. And in a split second, it destroys itself two feet from the ground. Oh, jeez. Just stuff went <laughs> everywhere. That's awesome. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I said, he glued the gyro down. We should never have flown this. But so you never know. Even with a helicopter, somebody can do some crazy stuff. So if you buy used machines, go through them with a fine tooth comb. Oh, yes. That's yeah, what I unless, do. You, unless you know the aircraft unless you really know well. Take it apart. From, and even then, you might know a guy and think he's great, but he might build like crap. You know, that's a that's a generally a bad point for beginners in the hobby, too, is when they go to buy something used and they get taken by somebody who's, you know, just looking to sell something. Um, because we all know that if you get extremely frustrated with your first model, the odds of you buying your second model are pretty slim. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's always you get, good you if you... pulled down a hole. Yeah, if you, it's always good if somebody comes into your club and is looking for help, really try to help the guy. I mean, don't just, you know, help him a little bit. You know, take him under your wing and guide him because somebody probably guided you in the beginning, too. I mean, it, it truly, you need you need assistance in our hobby to get your model successfully built and in the air. And, you know, like on the Urcha website, we have what's called the pit crew program. Um, so you're able to contact people in your area just go on there and uh you can put in your information and it will let you find somebody in your area who's volunteered to be part of the pit crew so that's pit cool. crew just that's for pilots in training that's so really it's just, cool yeah just a regular average guy that just, just flies and he's willing to help out if you know say you, you live in atlanta there might be a guy who lives in atlanta um and we had a period where we had a lot of people sign up for that years ago and we're, we're going to try to push to get more people to sign up for that again because because i'd list up yeah i yeah. mean because if you can because there's a lot of areas where you might be the only heli guy, and you might be the only guy interested in helis. Like in Montana? Yeah, or, or Minnesota where Dan lives. Yeah, northern Minnesota, yeah. Yeah, northern. Um, so it's it's great to find help. And, you know, a lot of times, in a even in a town like Chattanooga where I live, um, I think we have probably 200 hobbyists here that are active. There's only – four or five of us that fly helicopters. I mean, so it's not a huge, huge community, even in a town of, of our moderate size. Wow. I mean, how big of an area do you guys have, or how many heli pilots do you have in your area, Robert? I don't know. Surprisingly large number, I think. Seems like it anyway. I'll go back to uh, the stats on the podcast. Virginia is number three <laughs> of people have downloaded. It was... <laughs> Between between uh, who would they call that? The Delmarva, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and then add in North Carolina. There's a lot. I was actually, you know, I was actually wondering where the West Virginia people are at. I was like, we got to, you know, if someone's within a 500 mile radius of us, why aren't they here? Because we only usually get like one guy from West Virginia comes to the fun fly in Fredericksburg. And well, I mean, the podcast kind of shows it to me in the stats. There's no listeners from West Virginia. There's. <laughs> I there's no heli events to get to get registered there, and I actually looked up. I found a club. There's guys who come from West Virginia to the Jamboree because they got photos of them visiting the Jamboree on their website. But um, they uh, uh, you know they, they don't seem to make it my way. Um, and you they're know, so far west that they're actually flying, looking at the Ohio River. Oh wow! Wow, that is. Yeah, I keep forgetting West Virginia is well, huge. I was going to say, yeah, you guys are much more expansive of an area than we are. I mean, like, where I live in Chattanooga for a long time, you could attend, like, nine or ten events, um, and they were within two and a half hours of you. 
Yeah, I mean, one year I made it to 14 events. I think last year I was at 10, and they're not all helis. There's there's a few mixed events in there. But I think I'm doing six to eight just pure heli events between um, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and, and South Carolina. Yeah, that's – I probably – I mean, for me, doing the Jamboree – it kind of cuts into like I have the summer where or the spring where I'll do a lot of flying and then not so much when summer hits. And then usually for a month or two after the jamboree, I don't, I don't have much chance to fly. Usually at my house, if I start mentioning flying helicopters after being gone 10 days, uh, I get the look. <laughs> so, um, and you got to figure I've been doing this now for, uh, I think I've been a part of, of the board since 2005. Wow. Um, I think that was when I got suckered. I mean, volunteered to first become a part of it. Voluntold. Voluntold. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Mike, you know about that, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's funny what happened, how I got brought into this. I used to have a local level event, the Chattanooga heli jamboree. And, um, I, my background is in was in medical sales and marketing, so I marketed the event early on. So within the first year or two, I had Pepsi as a sponsor, and I had Massage Therapy School sponsor it. So we had on-site massage therapy tents for pilots that came to the event. Dude, <laughs> Monty, get on that. Yeah. And so um, I had gone to Clint Aiken's birthday event down in Georgia, and I met um, Dave Milner and Brett Walker, who were on the Urcha board at the time. And they had heard about my event with the uh, massage therapists and Pepsi and stuff. And so they were interested in one, they were wanting to talk to me and see if I would be interested in being a part of the, of the Urcha group. And I, I was still reasonably new in the hobby. I mean, I hadn't really been involved too much yet. I, I had gone, I had gone to the Jamboree once before as a volunteer. I, I went and I worked radio impound. I know most of the young pilots now don't even know what that is, but, um, we had to stand in a trailer all day long and control who got what channels and, you know, take them in and out. But, um, you know, I was asked by Brett and Dave, if I would be interested in coming to, you know, see about being a part of the group. And it sounded like fun. And they said, you know, board positions are two years and, you know, that's all you're committing to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, so they ended up coming to my event in Chattanooga then that that spring, and they came and partook in the massage therapists and such. And um, then I went that year and was part of the – wasn't officially on the board. I came and worked just with the group, and then that next spring I was officially a board member. But, um, you know, you, you kind of – you get involved, and it's it's like with everything. You, you have people who – show interest in becoming a part of something but you know over time how many people really stay and commit and so over that many years i mean it's few and far between that we have people who are willing to commit the time that it takes to be a part of the urge board i mean we're at the jamboree for roughly 10 straight days doing the event and then we meet i mean dan we meet what monthly early on and then we go up to every two weeks and then weekly as we lead up to the event because yeah, there's a, absolutely. You know, a lot and that's a meeting, lot as a, meeting as a group that's not counting all the 
text messages back and forth from Charles and I or Tim and I or um, yeah, it's there's a quite a bit of communication leading up to an event like this. And there's a, a lot of communication with companies. I mean, we'll speak to you know people that either own the companies or represent the companies or their marketing departments um, just over time, throwing ideas back and forth. You know, what would you like to do this year? You know, what can we help you promote? Um, because our goal for the companies that come over is, um, you know, to try to help them use the time and exposure as much as they can. And of course, we have a lot of international companies that come over. This is the really the one big time they come over to the U.S. each year, and it's because it's you know one of the few places where you get such a large number of pilots at any one given time. Um, but there's a lot of you know a lot of time involved, and in addition to the just the Urcha event itself, you know, we put in, you know, we're at the Toledo show representing Urcha and helicopters and the AMA for um, like four or five days. And then we typically will do one of the AMA shows. And so that's like four or five days there. And again, it, it sounds, you know, fun and it is fun, but there's a lot of work involved too. I mean, we're all taking vacation time and time from families and things like that. So it's a give and take. I mean, we, we know that it's fun for us. Um, if we, if we didn't have fun, we wouldn't do it, but it's also you know, committing of time. Yeah. Um, and it's great. I mean, having you guys, uh, Robert, that were willing to become part of our ambassadors program. I mean, that helps us out. Uh, you and, uh, there's myself, there's Eaton, Eaton and Sprayberry. And, um, and then we've, Kind of suckered Pete into being a kind of ambassador. So, I mean, <laughs> we've not officially branded him yet, but uh, yeah. And then, my, and then Mike Unger too. So I mean, it's it's great having some new people who are interested in helping out. Um, and then you know Dan Dan Lucinta, who's on with us, he was a part. He was kind of a transitional board member for several years, and then you know when the time came and he, we were able to bring him on, we brought him on too, and. Then we had another position open up, and so now Wes is uh, is part of our group. So it's it's it, being on the board for so long. I can tell you, it is great to have new people come on and be a part of things because I love coming up with ideas and plans. But over time, we need new ideas and new plans, and it, it that's the only way we can help to be help to grow and be fresh is to have we, different input. I'm we scared. also need the extra people to rein Charles in and tell him his ideas and plans <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, and, and that's and that's part of what is what's good that goes on. I mean, I I do come up with crazy ideas sometimes, and I you know I need people to say, yeah, that's not going to work. We can't do that. Yeah, it was it was fun last year before the jamboree. Some of the emails I received from from you, and, and it is like, yeah, that that idea sounds cool, but I think the pilots are going to cheat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the only way that it works. I mean, and I. This is something that goes on all year long. I'll, I'll have a random idea that'll come into my head, and I'll, you know, I'll email Dan and the others like, "Hey, got an idea? What do you guys think?" Um, yeah. And that's that's really the way that things have come about. I mean, the first the first year I was officially part of the group uh, back in two thousand five or six, I had an idea for uh, pylon racing with four hundred and fifty helicopters, and that was the birth of what was called the Carnage four hundred and fifty. And we ran that, I think, for three or four years. And it was truly, as you can imagine, um, nothing was left but just pieces. Monty, why end. are we not supporting I this? Think, 
Uh, Charles, I think I think there's a whole state that just erupted in happiness, yeah. knowing that 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 our that our board members support carnage. Hey, you know, as long as there's a safety area, we encourage fun. I mean, we <laughs> sometimes people think we are the fun police, but we just have to make sure that things are up to the safety expectations of AMA, and we don't want anybody get to get hurt. I mean, because in the end. It's, it falls on our shoulders. I mean, if, if somebody gets hurt, we feel guilty. I mean, we feel, did we, did we miss something? Is there something we could have done that could have prevented this? I mean, so we, you know, we worry every year, are the safety lines where they need to be? Do we need to expand anything more? Do we need to do anything different? Um, but we encourage fun. I mean, we're just like the rest of you guys. I mean, we want to have fun. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, there's, a, there's an inside joke for uh, pilots at the Jamboree. Or at least from my point of view, in that um, a lot of 3D pilots, they love to claim that they can fly to anything. Like we'd say, oh, have you got music prepared? Oh, no, I didn't didn't do that. I can fly to anything. So it started as a joke several years ago um, when Addison Burnside was our uh, kind of our DJ. I would just go over the mic, sit up, give them the gaga. So we would just pick <laughs> random songs that people would nice. fly to. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I still do that now. I have a list on my phone of music that if they don't have anything prepared, <laughs> get that random stuff. So if you hear a song that comes up like uh, John Denver, something like that, that's that's my pick. Uh, one of the best ones we ever did, and one of the most infamous pilots for doing this, and some of the young kids won't know him, but his name was uh, Henry Caldwell. I know the name. Mm-hmm. Henry Caldwell was the kind of the godfather of hey y'all watch this with a helicopter mm-hmm. um, I mean he at events he used to be infamous for doing inverted autos through camps oh yep on, that on guy Caldwell yeah Caldwell talking about yep that was Henry Caldwell and he he was an incredibly crazy pilot um, and he never he would not practice the music anything he just liked to smack uh, so one year I planned it. He was flying for, um, trying to think, he was flying for Outrage when Outrage helicopters were still around. So I planned it ahead. I knew Henry would not have any music prepared. So I printed up the words to Sweet Caroline huh. and I gave them to people up and down the line. And this is one of the years when all the companies had a lot of models. And so when Henry went to fly while his back, while everybody was to his back, I, had everybody get ready and the music started and we all sang while he was flying. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I went up to him and I said, you said you can fly to anything. What's the problem, guy? Come on, let's see it. <laughs> you know, you know, Charles, uh, I got a song in mind in my head and, and these two guys, they know what I'm talking about. Oh, God. <laughs> is, this, is this a song you're going to share or is this going to be a secret song? Oh, gonna see uh, some people know. Probably best kept mm-hmm. secret for now. Probably. Yeah, you should, you should keep <laughs> that. It's going to be a nat surprise. Okay. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, that, that'll you. work. Dude, um, it's, uh, you get, oh, uh, just a quick thing there. We're gonna looks like we're gonna be having an F three N sportsman class this year at the Nat, so you could probably do that. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I, uh, uh, talking with Unger, we actually put that in the news in episode two. So the episode that was just uh, just released this past Monday, um, we talked about an F3N sportsman, but it has no music. Right now we're talking about it's uh, 
set maneuvers of K value seven or lower and um, freestyle. Oh, do it to music. Yeah, <laughs> everything. Everything. I want to do it. I want to do a music flight as well in the sportsman class. I want to do it. I want to try it. <sighs> yeah, let's, well, you, you, all, you all know how to yell at younger, and I, I suggested it be no music because flying to music is hard. It is. It's, well, yeah. if you're being a try hard, it is. Well, yeah. Well, but strong. here's here's the trick to the F3N stuff, and having judged it now for I guess three years, the trick to F3N, from what I can say from a judge's point of view, is all you have to do is pick the maneuvers and choreograph the routine to your skill level. If you do that, you're going to be okay. But if you're trying to fly way above your skill set level or do maneuvers that you just cannot perform, it's going to make your flight look horrible. I I have a hard time choosing music that fits my flying style of, wow, that sucks. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? The, the hamster dance is easily downloadable now. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but apparently DePaulo does. I'm oh curious God. to find out. You don't oh know God. the hamster dance. You don't was know the what the hamster dance is. That thing that came out. It, it's like yeah, the original really? meme. Oh no! Here, uh, here's a bit of here's a bit oh, of trivia. Here's a bit of trivia for you on that song. Do you know where that song actually comes from? The United was, States. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> no, it was an original Disney movie, the Robin Hood movie with the with the uh, forest characters. It's it's. The the themes the song is done to a chorus that's in that song, but it's not the hamster dance. There you song. go. That's it. The original website. Got to play it on the mic. It no, exists. Uh, we'll we'll add it in the show notes so people can check it out if they really uh, dislike <laughs> their audio. <laughs> it, oh, it's one of those songs that once you get in your head, it stays there for a while. Oh gosh, should I I'll fly to this? Tries, no. no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, just, just, just. Should I even try it? I will. No, no. The hell, you know, actually, um, I don't know. I probably shouldn't because last time you guys said that, I played Paper Planes and it's stuck in my head. No. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of the Urcha interview. Part two will be available shortly for you to continue listening.